Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. This morning we're going to look at the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in a city named Thessalonica. And these Thessalonians had believed on Jesus. The Bible tells us that they had turned from their idols to the only true God. They had repented of their sin. And they had believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for God's mercy and forgiveness. In the first chapter, right at the beginning of this letter, we read the Apostle Paul saying this about these these Christians in Thessalonica. He says that they, you, speaking to them, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves, so this is speaking of those that the Uh, Christians in Thessalonica have spoken to of their faith and of Jesus, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how, and then listen to this, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's hard choosing a text if you're not going through a book. We go through books so that the pastor doesn't have to choose a text. But on Easter, you choose a text. And one of the the things I wanted to do this Easter was I wanted to choose a text that emphasized the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ allows us to escape the wrath of God. I, I am appalled at the absence of any indication on the part of Christians, let alone pagans today, that we know that we do not deserve to live in the presence of God. And that God is angry against the sinners every day. We're such a presumptuous people, and and heaven knows why we're presumptuous, because of the wealth of America, the status, the pride, the, the military might. Everything about America is perfectly designed to make us presumptuous, right? But Christians should live in the knowledge of their own sinfulness and the love of Jesus that causes us to tremble before a holy God. And deep in our hearts, all of us, whether we're Christians or unbelievers, We know that God is holy, and we know we don't measure up to him. And so the Apostle Paul, just incidentally in speaking to the Thessalonians, he says, this Jesus who, what? Who rescues us from the wrath to come. You know, if you were to stop anybody on the street and say to them, are you aware of some wrath to come? Everybody would say, what what are you talking about? What wrath? People aren't aware of the wrath of God. They're they're very, very aware of the love of God, although what they think of as God's love often isn't. But they're not aware of the wrath of God. Well, the Thessalonians believed that they had been rescued from their idols. 
and that Jesus' resurrection had happened. He had been raised from the dead, and so they were going to be raised from the dead. They didn't just believe in Jesus' resurrection. In verse chapter 2, verse 19 of this book, the Apostle Paul says to them, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? And so what he's saying to them is, you know, I have great joy in you thinking about Jesus returning and how we will be gathered together with him. We see this theme of their mutual anticipation of Jesus coming repeatedly in the letter. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, so that he, God, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus, and then he adds, with all his saints. And so the resurrection of Christ is bound up with the resurrection of all the saints. In chapter 5, he speaks of Jesus' return. He says, we will be without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says this, He says, then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end, which is to destroy, by the appearance of his coming. And so we know that when Jesus returns, it's precious to those who are in him, but it's horrible to those who are not in Jesus. It's horrible. The Bible says that the breath of his mouth will destroy by the appearance of his coming the lawless one. And this is a a perfect description of the United States today. The United States, uh, instead of being called the horror Babylon, could be called the lawless one. Whatever God says not to do, we brag about doing, and whatever God says to do, we are without any fear in refusing to do, starting with worshiping him and keeping his law. So we ask the question, reading all these references to the second coming and to the resurrection of Christ and of us as who are in him, what Christian doesn't hold tightly to this hope of Jesus Christ and to his return? But here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, our text, beginning with verse 13, the subject the Apostle Paul turns to is much more personal. It's about loved ones who have died. It's a very tender section. The believers there in Thessalonica have had loved ones die, and through Timothy, they have asked the Apostle Paul to explain to them, when Jesus returns, what will happen to their loved ones who have died? Now, this is a very sweet thing, as I said. Why? Well, because the more vulnerable we get as individuals, the more specifics we want. (laughs) You know? We're very tender to know Who will go first and who will go second and when will this happen and where will it happen and what will I hear to know it's happening, you know? These are the things that we need. We need these things. And so the Apostle Paul very tenderly stoops down to them in their questions about their loved ones. And our text is his answer. So this is the word of God as it's given to us from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. It is because it's God's word eternally true. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul begins his explanation with these words, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. You could also translate the word uninformed as ignorant. This is a frequent statement of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is not a friend of ignorance. And he thinks that ignorance is not good for us. And so he's constantly teaching us. So don't look down on your teachers. Ignorance is not good, actually. All right? And so he's teaching us today. He doesn't want us to be uninformed either. These believers were mourning the loss of their loved ones. And he wants them to know something. All right? Now, mourning and grieving and tears are man's very natural responses to death. Paul's purpose in writing is to comfort them in their sadness and grief. Note that the Apostle Paul does not tell them they're wrong for expressing their grief and sorrow. The Bible never tells us not to mourn the loss of our loved ones. Never. In Ecclesiastes 3, beginning with verse 1, we read, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Often Christians, in a a sort of uh, misplaced faith, will try to squelch mourning and grieving and tears, their own and that of others. And this is absolutely wrong. We should never, ever squelch grief. As a matter of fact, grief is a hard work that the Bible commands us to do. In Romans 12, 15, we're even told that we're to join with others who grieve. It says there, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. They say that your most uh, sympathetic thing is a yawn. So if you yawn, everybody else in the room will yawn. Have you ever tried to stifle a yawn so that everybody else in the room doesn't have to yawn? You know? Well, I think tears are even more sympathetic. You may not see the sadness of the death of your mother-in-law until you look up and see your brother-in-law crying. And then it washes over you. And the Bible commands us to weep with those who weep. And so there should never be this false, superficial, callous 
repudiation or suppressing of tears on the part of Christians. Our Lord Jesus himself grieved in the presence of death when, you remember, Lazarus died. When Jesus saw his sister weeping, it says in John 11, the Jews who came with her also were weeping. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. What was the Jews' response? Well, it says the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man also from dying? And then we have this other little note. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Listen, let me say to you, I had an eye-opening experience some years ago. I was no stranger to crying at death, none. But then one day I went to the funeral of someone, I don't remember who it was, but it was in a, 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 it was in a Methodist church. I think it was up in Wisconsin Dells, if I remember correctly. And I got there a little bit early, which is unusual for me, and... I sat in the back behind a row of older couples. They're probably younger than I am now, but at the time they were older. And I listened to them in preparation for this funeral as they talked about going to the casino to gamble and made jokes. And I tell you, I was horrified. I had never heard or seen such a thing. Never. And I had been sort of the town's barrier I live behind, we live behind the uh, funeral home, and so if somebody didn't have a pastor or had nobody mourning for them, the funeral director would ask me to come and do the funeral. And so I had been with a lot of people who were unbelievers, godless. I had never seen such a thing as, as people sitting prior to a funeral and laughing and telling jokes and just carrying on as if they had no sense of the sadness and tragedy of death. Men who do not grieve over the death of others' loved ones in their own. In fact, men who don't grieve about any death are men who have no milk of human compassion. Men who have erased the knowledge of God and the knowledge of good and evil in their own hearts. They are not men, and, and honestly, they are not even animals. They are machines. They are dead men walking. The world has many such men, and many more are turning themselves into such soulless creatures today. There is an attempt in the world today to remove entirely, to obliterate grief at death. We take control of death through drugs, through morphine, through withholding of food and water, and then as soon as the body's dead, we take it over to, to some place where they burn it and, and stomp on it and, and slam it and reduce it to dust, and then it's spread over the world, and there's never any moment to grieve. There's never a time to grieve. Why? Well, because we're masters of our destiny. If anything is true of Americans, that's what's true of us. And we're not going to let death stop that. I mean, have any of you ever come into this country with an American passport? 
<laughs> Let me tell you, if you've ever done that, you understand that Americans are the top. And so when it comes to death, God doesn't shake us. Now, death doesn't shake us. We're in control. We don't suffer. We don't grieve. As I said, this is for us to be worse than animals. Death is an enemy, and those who know God and his perfect creation in the Garden of Eden mourn death because they know it was not supposed to be this way. They know that death is the result of sin. You know, even animals know enough to mourn the death of their loved ones. There's an elephant researcher, Martin Meredith, who writes of the death of a matriarch of an elephant herd. He says this, he says, the entire family of a dead matriarch, including her young calf, were all gently touching her body with their trunks, trying to lift her. The elephant herd were all rumbling loudly. The calf was observed to be weeping and made sounds that sounded like a scream. But then the entire herd fell silent. They then began to throw leaves and dirt over the body and broke off tree branches to cover her. They spent the next two days quietly standing over her body. They sometimes had to leave to get water or food, but they would always return. These are the animals. No humane member of humanity is without tears and mourning and grief in the face of death. Death is an enemy, and we know this instinctively. God has placed this knowledge in all men, and men have to work hard at becoming so heartless as to leave this knowledge and this feeling behind. Christians are not to have what John Calvin refers to as a stoical indifference or, he says, iron hardness. And so, no, the Apostle Paul does not rebuke the believers in Thessalonica for grieving the death of their loved ones. Rather, tenderly, he reminds them that their grieving must be different from the grieving of the world. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Everything after this is for the purpose of them not grieving as unbelievers. What is the source of the inconsolable grief of an unbeliever? Why is it inconsolable? Well, first, they do not know God. And if there's anything that I can tell you with certainty, it is that you were made to know God. You were made to know God and to worship him. But unbelievers know nothing of the joy of an intimate relationship of love with him as his children, his sons and daughters, because their life is lived without knowledge of his grace and mercy, his forgiveness. The very simple things here. Everyone has knowledge of their sin. God puts this knowledge in our hearts. We all have it. Believer and unbeliever, we all have this knowledge of our sin. And the reason I ended the children's sermon by telling them to admit when they've been wrong is because this is the sign of someone who lives in the presence of the Lord. Somebody that lives in the presence of the Lord doesn't deny their sin. The whole reason they live in the presence of the Lord is because they can't bear their sin. And so they flee to the mercy of God. 
but not unbelievers. Unbelievers are unwilling to admit their need of God, their sin, and so they flee from the presence of the Lord. What does it mean for men not to know God? Well, in Ephesians 2, it says, remember, this is speaking to Christians who previously didn't believe. He says, remember about this time you didn't believe that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, or we would say today, excommunicated from the church of Jesus Christ. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, all right, separate from God's people, okay, separate from Christ, separate from his people, excluded from the church, strangers to the promises of Scripture. And then it adds this. It says, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope and without God. No hope and without God. This is the reason that unbelievers sorrow in an inconsolable way. And there's nothing we can say to help them other than, come to me, said Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We all, most of us, have heard Augustine quoted saying that we were made for God and our hearts are never at rest until they rest in him. And so they don't know God, and so they, they have no hope for the life to come. They have no hope that they will be gathered together with their maker, our heavenly father. They have no hope of being reunited with their loved ones who belong to Jesus. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, and you know what I'm going to say now, right? Those of you who have been here as we study Romans, you know what I'm going to say. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, and what? They know it. Don't ever let them lie to you. They know their condition before a holy God. This is what Romans 1 teaches us. So they are, by their very nature, objects of wrath, the wrath of the holy God. Ephesians 2, verse 3, it says, By nature, prior to Christ, we, all of us, were children of wrath. There's an epitaph in an old Wisconsin cemetery on the grave of a 21-year-old son, and it goes like this. "'Tis hard to break the tender cord when love has bound the heart. "'Tis hard, so hard, to speak the words we must forever part." My father was in a waiting room of a physician when his son was dying of leukemia. Actually, it was right after he had died. And there was a mother with her little child there who had leukemia also. And my father started speaking to her about his hope of seeing his son again in the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And in a very pathetic way, this woman said very, very, very sincerely, she said, I wish, I truly wish that I had your hope, but I don't. Such a sad moment. On many graves in the ancient world, written in both Greek and Latin, is this little couplet, I was not, I was. 
I am not, I care not. I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. Now what of Christians? Well, we are not to grieve or mourn like those who are without God and without hope in the world. Our mourning should never be inordinate or excessive. We ought not to grieve the deep, inconsolable grief of those men and women of this world who do not belong to Jesus and therefore have no hope. So what is to be our attitude or faith in the face of the death of our loved ones? What is our comfort? Well, we know that Christians, those called and chosen by God, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, are merely what? Asleep. Asleep in Christ. Verse 13 tells us, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Calvin says there's a great difference between sleep and destruction. Matthew Henry says, death doesn't annihilate Christians, rather it leaves them at rest, asleep in their Savior's arms. Their souls are in his presence, and their dust is under his care and power. Now, often Scripture speaks of this sleep. In the Old Testament, those who die are often spoken of as what? Sleeping with their fathers. In the New Testament, this way of speaking of death occurs frequently, including when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is rebuking the Corinthians for coming to the table without discerning the body and blood of Jesus Christ at the Lord's Supper. And he says to them that because of this sin, this is why many of them are sick, and some have fallen asleep, and by that he means death. In fact, the Greek word for sleep is the origin of our word cemetery. It comes from the Greek word koimaterion, meaning sleeping place. And it, that word comes from the verb koimen, to put to sleep. Early Christian writers were the first to use this Greek word koimaterion, or sleeping place, for the burial ground. On this sleep, Calvin says, the dead body lies in the tomb as in a couch until God raises up the man. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh. So, the discussion after, when mom dies, actually it was while she was still dying, we knew the time was drawing near, and the discussion comes up of how we're going to go through the process of, of, of having the funeral service, the visitation, and then the graveside service, and then the burial. And the question comes up, um, well, who will be the pallbearers? And I cannot tell you how thankful I was to be in that meeting discussing who would be able to, to carry mom to her grave. This woman, you know how they say that everybody gets lied about at their funeral, you know? And I've had some people just tell me how furious they are when they get done with a funeral that, of course, I haven't done, right? <laughs> Where some relative was just a nasty, nasty person, you know, and they just lied about him all through the, f- the funeral, you know. Well, I'm here to tell you that with great joy that nothing anybody said at the funeral about mom 
was a lie. She was that wonderful of a mother-in-law and a mother. She was like, I don't know, what's the word? Cat's meow? She was, she was just absolutely fantastic. I always used to tell people that if I ever got mad at my wife and tried to go home, my parents wouldn't have me. That's how much they love Mary Lee. And I also said, if Mary Lee ever tried to go home, her mother wouldn't have her. That's how much mom loved me. And, and you know what I'm like. <laughs> so you know she was a very godly woman. <laughs> and so there we were talking about carrying mom out of the funeral, into the hearse, and then picking her up in the hearse and taking her over to the grave. We put her in the couch. We put her on her couch. We were very careful in how we carried mom. I got to do it. They are asleep. But don't make this mistake. This is not soul sleep. This is body sleep. Because the soul of the believer is with Christ. Why? Because the believer has fallen asleep. In verse 14 it says, in Christ. In Luke 23, 43, you remember the thief on the cross that believed right before his death? Before he could be baptized, by the way. <laughs> okay. That thief, Jesus said to him in Luke 23, 43, it says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So why is it that those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will be gathered together with him in the clouds? Well, it's because there is an absolute solidarity by faith between Jesus and those who believe in him. When we believe in Jesus, we are bound together with him so that our destiny from that point on is wrapped in his resurrection. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Especially not death. In 1 Corinthians 15, which is called what? It's called the resurrection chapter. Okay, it says this, beginning with verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, if our only hope in Jesus is for what good things we get in this life, <laughs> we're really stupid. Well, why? Well, because we're despised and rejected as our master was. I know it doesn't look that way in this church this morning. We're all dressed up. And I'm sitting talking to you, so I have a lot of power, right? But we are despised and rejected of men. We are, to unbelievers, what? When I walked up this morning to get to see what was going on up here, and if all the, all the things I needed were here, I smelled the lilies. But to unbelievers, what are we? We are the smell of death. Unbelievers are around us and we stink to them. This is what scripture says. We're the smell of death to them. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. 
For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And so the resurrection of Jesus is our hope. And it's not only our hope for what will happen to us ourselves when we sleep, but more right now with the Thessalonians, with me and the death of mom, with my wife and the death of her mother. This is our hope for our loved ones. Whether our loved ones we have as loved ones in blood or in spirit, other Christians who have fallen asleep. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, what? In Jesus. Who are those who are in Jesus? Well, it says in that verse, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Those who are in Jesus are those who believe that Jesus died and rose again. Listen, there were some things that were not said about mom that should have been said at her funeral. But there's a certain delicacy at funerals that keeps us from having faith to say the things that need to be said that aren't positive. And yet, to a Christian, they are positive. And what are those things? Well, those things are that mom was a sinner. Nobody gave any indication that mom was a sinner. But mom was a sinner. Now, I will tell you that even her sins I found mostly delightful. <laughs> but you know, mom could be quite critical of her husband. Uh, you, you had to be blind not to see it. I know none of you wives suffer the same problem, right? <laughs> you, you just see, see that your husband's perfect, right? Right, Anne? <laughs> that was a hearty laugh. <laughs> But honestly, you think about mom's funeral and you think, you know, listen, the thing that I found most endearing about mom was what? I don't know if my kids even know. But the thing I found most endearing about mom is if you ever asked her to pray. Do you know what she did? She cried as she prayed. I don't think I ever heard her pray without a broken voice. Why? Why? Why did she have a broken voice every time she prayed? I remember Sam Wester, a man that died at 92 or 93, six foot five, six, seven, Dutch guy up in Wisconsin at my first church. And, and when, I would, when I would pray with Sam, every single time he prayed, do you know what he would say? Oh, Lord, our God, we are not worthy to even approach your presence, sinful as we are, but we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Mom was saying. Mom knew that she did not deserve the presence of the Lord. And every time she spoke to him, she confessed it in her own way. This is what it means to be in Jesus, and this is the reason I told the little children to learn to love to confess their sins, not to argue with their parents. 
How can we love God and not be willing to confess our failures? Honestly. You know, everybody else knows your failure. You know, nobody else doesn't see it. That's like a double negative. Nobody else, isn't there like a, what's that, that guy, you know, the cartoon? Isn't, didn't he write a cartoon, some, you know, radial flyer, or what's that? Yeah, 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 that's it. No two people are not what? Yeah, no, no two people are not on fire. All people are different, right? But when it comes to sin, we're not different, actually. Everybody knows your sin. Honestly, you're the only one who doesn't, <laughs> right? Can we all cop to that? We don't fool anyone. Mom didn't fool anyone. We all knew that she had sin, but we also knew that she had no hope except in Jesus. She was not a moralist. Do you think a son-in-law would ever love a mother-in-law who was a moralist? No. I remember, when, uh, I remember when they had their 60th wedding anniversary, the family decided they were going to get together and they were going to celebrate it. It was at some place north of, in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Don't ask me why, but that's where it was. And so we were all supposed to talk about what we were thankful to mom and dad for, and you can imagine that everybody in the family was thankful because, you know, they had clean sheets on their bed every night, and they got fed good food, and and that mom and dad had, you know, given them money and paid for their children's college education and, you know, all this good stuff. And then me. <laughs> you know, huge circle. They had 10 kids, 28 grandchildren. She had, when she died, she had 78 uh, great-grandchildren. She was almost, we buried her on her 101st birthday, all right? And so we're going around the circle and it comes to me. You know what I said? What I said was, I said that I was so thankful that they had forgiven me. That they had forgiven me. And I was crying. And all of a sudden, all around this circle, all the grandchildren, everybody's saying, what on earth did they forgive him for? Well, I had not thought this through. I didn't realize that people there didn't know that they had forgiven me. And so afterwards, I had to explain to my children what they what they had forgiven me for. <laughs> of course mom forgave me. Why? Because she loved Jesus and he had forgiven her. He had forgiven her. And so I lived with my mother and father-in-law in the knowledge of my sin and their forgiveness of my sin. Because why? Well, because before they ever forgave me my sin, God forgave them. This is what we must live in. This is what must permeate our homes, our conversations. Everything must be grace and forgiveness. No moralism. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and there's a whole lot of truth packed in that statement. Why would we believe in the death of Jesus if we didn't need it? He took upon himself our sins. Now, what authority does the Apostle Paul have for the things he's writing? Well, in verse 15, he says, For this we say to you 
by the word of the Lord. So he's saying, this is not my authority. I haven't made this up. This isn't a fairy tale. The word of the Lord is my basis for what I'm about to say. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is the heart of our text. We will not go ahead of our loved ones who are in the grave, who are asleep. We will not precede them. Now, ask yourself, why is that the heart of the text? Why, why do they need to know what the order is? Well, back at this time, the word parousia in Greek refers to uh, the coming of very important people. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul uh, goes to Rome? Do you remember what it says as he approaches Rome? you remember what happened? As he approaches Rome, the Christians come out of Rome to meet him on the road. And this was true of, of conquerors, of, of returning victorious generals. This was true of anybody important that the officers of the city would come out of the city to meet them on the road. Have you ever had somebody honor you by coming out of the house, down the driveway to meet you as soon as you get out of the car? This is what it was. But they would leave the city, and all the important people in the city would go out with them. And so when Christ returns... There are going to be people who meet him. Okay? How could we not? And what they want to know is, well, if they're in the grave, how can they meet him? They love them. And so, yeah, they love Jesus and they want to meet Jesus, but they love them. And what about them and him? And it's sweet. It's so sweet. What about them? And, and the Apostle Paul says, don't worry, you won't precede them. They get first dibs. And this is the way it was when, when, when conquerors would come, when generals, when emperors would come. The most important people would be the first ones to meet them on the road. And then the lesser important people, and it would be a pecking order, okay? Until they got in the city when the people who couldn't leave their jobs because they were that low on the social scale, those people would stand at the roads and clap and cheer right? They weren't allowed to leave, but they met them too, okay? Are you all with me? And so here he says, don't worry, you won't precede them. <laughs> oh, no. No. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The Lord himself. Not sweet Jesus. The Lord. And Donald Trump won't be able to fire him. And I don't say that as a joke at all, but it is funny. The thought of Donald Trump firing the Lord. No, 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 no. The Lord himself will appear. The Lord, not a Lord. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. It's very interesting here. There's not even a mention of unbelievers. Have you noticed that? There's not even a mention of them. They don't matter. They will simply be consumed by God's wrath. 
and we're about comforting Christians. And so we don't talk about the sadness and tragedy and horror. No. He's our Lord, and he will appear. He will descend from heaven. Descend to us. Isn't that wonderful, the Sistine Chapel? I mean, I don't like the Sistine Chapel, and I don't like Michelangelo, and I don't like Tetzel, who got all the indulgences money so that they could paint the Sistine Chapel. There's so much about the Sistine Chapel and its painting that's just so like, yeah. But what wonderful picture it is that we confess that Christianity is unlike any other religion the world has ever invented because God is reaching. He's reaching down from heaven. And this is what it says about Jesus. He will descend from heaven. And then it says, with a shout. Now, we don't know who's doing the shouting. It could be God. If it's God shouting, it makes thunder sound tame. It will shake the earth. It could be the archangel because it goes on and says, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel... We don't know who the archangel is. And then it says, with the trumpet of God. Now, you know, if you've ever listened to the Messiah by Handel, that there's that wonderful trumpet. The trumpet shows. And then you've got this, you know, and, and it's perfectly in tune. I was once in a worship service where somebody in the grad school was studying trumpet. And there was this fanfare at the beginning of the choir's anthem. And we had, I think, three services at the time. I don't think it was the first service. I think it was the second service, which was the largest, maybe. And so she got up to play the fanfare. <laughs> it was awful. I mean, she, I, I don't think she hit one note. And it wasn't just that she, you know, like flutes can barely miss a note and you're still okay with it. But when a trumpet doesn't hit a high note, there's no salvaging it. It was just so very awful. So we have this idea of a trumpet being in tune, on, you know, on pitch, rhythm, you know, it's, it's all right. But this was not what a trumpet was at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this. The trumpet was primarily a, a weapon of war. It was not a musical instrument. And so the point of a trumpet was not actually to be pretty. The point of a trumpet was to be so loud that nobody could escape its blowing. The Roman army did nothing without a trumpet being blown. So it's like a bugle, but even a bugle is pretty. A trumpet was a weapon of war. They would also blow them at the funeral. And so we have records of uh, we have records of the funeral of which Roman emperor was it? Uh, Claudius. When he died, the sound of the trumpets was so deafening that people said that the dead in their graves could hear the trumpets. So these trumpets are they're not Miles Davis, and they're not the Philadelphia Orchestra. These trumpets are not sounding any uncertain note. First, the shout, then the voice of the archangel, and then the trumpets of God. Oh, 
Oh. In Isaiah 27, 13, it says, it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, verse 52, the apostle Paul writes there, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And so the Lord appears, a command is given, the archangel speaks, the trumpet sounds, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. We see the precedent is given to the dead in Christ. And so then we will be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air, And so we shall, what? Always, always be with the Lord. We're caught up together with them in the clouds. I can remember a trip I made from Chicago down to the Indy Airport on one of those little joke planes, you know? The seat is a joke. The overhead compartment is a joke. The pilot's a joke. The plane's a joke. And there were bad thunderstorms between India and Chicago. And we spent the whole trip. It was the funnest. I mean, it was better a roller coaster. Because you could see the clouds coming, these, these huge cumulus clouds. And you could just see the pilot. Well, I'm going to go around that one to the left. And then the next one I'm going to go on. And the next one I'm over this way. And we spent the entire trip. And imagine being caught up with Jesus in those clouds. And the clouds are subject to Jesus Christ. And we're up there with him. The clouds are our bed. They're our couch. They're they're the road of triumph to the living God. And we're caught up together with them in the clouds. You know... um, Musicians talk about muscle memory. Have you ever heard them refer? I think, isn't that what it's called, muscle memory? So it's repetition of a certain uh, repetitive action of your fingers. Of, it's so repetitive. You've done it so many times. I have muscle memory of painting. Any of you had muscle memory from painting? I have muscle memory from using a hammer. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm hammering in my sleep, right? I have muscle memory of death. I can absolutely tell you what it feels like, what it sounds like, what it smells like, and what it does to me. I know death. And death is an enemy, and I hate it. Do you know why I hate it? Because death has taken everything that I love from me. I'm not saying that all my grandchildren and my kids and everything are gone. But I can't tell you. (laughs) I was out on my back deck. We had just returned from Cape May, where our family took vacation. Our whole family had been there. And this is my brother Nathan. 
And I got this phone call. And Nathan told me he had cancer of the esophagus. And instantly, it all came back. I knew he was going to die. He was only 40, just adopted four kids. He was a pastor, happy marriage, far and away the most godly of our family. And it's a horrible thing. It's absolutely horrible. Death is an enemy. The death of an unborn child in a miscarriage or an abortion, that death is an enemy. It's not a friend to anyone. They may think it is, but it's not. The death of my, grand, my mother-in-law when she was 101 and almost 102, that death is an enemy. Why? Because God did not make us to die. But Adam sinned, and he brought death into this world. But what God in his kindness has done for us is God has given us the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, people, the solution to your sin and to your grief over maybe your own impending death, but certainly the death of your loved ones, the solution is not to be heartless and cruel and make yourself immune to grief. The solution It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the solution. It's a very simple solution. And so come to Jesus. I'm not ashamed of saying that. Billy Graham spent his life saying it. Come to Jesus. He will take you in. And if you come to Jesus, when you die, you will die in Jesus. Solidarity. And in that solidarity, he will never abandon your body, let alone your soul. When he returns you will precede those of us who have not died. You will be the important one. You will come up out of the grave from your couch, as Calvin puts it, and you will meet him in the air. And listen, there will be no humility, no humility this time. It's not going to be in a manger in Bethlehem. He will come and the entire world will know that God is Jesus Christ. And God will make every knee bow before him. Some will bow because they've spent their lives bowing. Some will bow because finally they're forced to do the one thing they spent their lives refusing to do. God doesn't care how you honor Jesus. You're going to honor him. But if you come now, he will receive you. He will receive you. (laughs) Yes, I know your sin. And you say, well, how do you know my sin? I say, because I know my sin. There's no hope for any of us 
except the precious blood of Jesus. This is God's son. And so his son's blood is precious to him. If he knows when every sparrow falls and every deer falls, he knows when every one of us fall, and he will not abandon us. And so it's a pretty pathetic thing for us to do, if you think about it. Because we don't have the trumpet of God, the last trumpet, and we don't have the voice of an archangel, and we don't have the shout. But every Easter we end with zeal and loudness because death has no hold over us. Death has no grip on us. We suffer under it. It's an enemy, but Christ has been victorious over death. And so let's pray.